Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. This week, we have a really special podcast. We have brought together uh, pretty much the entire group of or the production team, creative team of Madame Butterfly from Opera Columbus that premiered a few months ago, I believe. Uh, We don't have everybody on the call, but we have most of them. We have Crystal Manich, who is the director, Kathy Kelly, who will hopefully be joining us soon as the conductor, Susan Van Pelt-Petrie, choreographer, Court Watson, who is scenic and costume designer, Shalalok Lopez-Waterman, lighting and production designer, we do not have Peggy Crea Die, mm-hmm. general and artistic we're hoping to have with us, but she was in another meeting. And Hester Warnin Stein, stage manager, also not with us. She's in the Netherlands at the moment and sends her best wishes. So usually we give a brief description of who we're talking to, but there are so many people. Instead, I was going through all of Crystal's director's notes from the website, and there's this one part that I just love, and that's kind of how I want to introduce our podcast because it's really what we want to talk about here. Crystal, you said this production from Opera Columbus combines the world of 19th century Japan with contemporary couture, views of race and religion, and the effect of clothing behavior. The costumes are meant to evoke the proper lines and silhouettes of kimonos and uniforms through a unique visual interpretation, connecting ageless emotions with contemporary audience. There is no attention paid to race or ethnicity when rounding up the best singers possible for this particular production. There's like 10 things in every single one of those sentences to me that just jump out and that are so amazing. So I guess my first big question to the group is, who came up with this idea to do Madam Butterfly? Because I admit it's not one of my favorite pieces because of how it's traditionally done. So whose idea was to do a Madam Butterfly and to to make it work in today's age? I had uh, directed Butterfly for Opera Columbus when the new, when the current version of the company got started five years ago. And so, uh, and Peggy had just become artistic director of the company. And uh, that was, you know, the company's first uh, production back after being on hiatus for a couple of years. And um, it was a rental, and so we, you know, there was there. I was sort of limited in what I could do, uh, but mm-hmm. Peggy has grown the company into being uh, one of the most innovative and uh, forward-thinking companies in the country um, because of all these changes that she's made. And so when I uh, actually Tala Court and I and Kathy, um, along with Susan, also doing choreography, we were doing. Uh, Carmen last year and Peggy and I uh, met up when we were wrapping up production for that and she said I want to do Butterfly again but I want to do it in a new way and so we had a conversation about what we would potentially um, you know be able to do uh, in terms of you know how to break down the notion of, of what Butterfly is Mm-hmm. And for me, that was getting stripping down to the core of the story. What is the core of the story? Two people from two different worlds who have a love affair lost in translation. That's it. It's very simple to me uh, to strip it down to that basic idea. And so that's where I started 
trying to get into um, that uh, mode of, of thinking, because even I had to change, you know, how I viewed um, the piece, uh, because it's, it's hard to get rid of your, your preconceptions um, after something that has been staged very similarly uh, for the last hundred plus years. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was a real challenge, but it, but it, in the end, because of the design team and because of Susan and, and also Kathy, I mean, I think it was a true collaboration in that sense. It really was a wonderful collaboration. And I'll just, this is Susan, um, because we had worked on Carmen, this same team, I think we kind of hit the ground running. At least I felt like I understood better how the process would go. Um, Crystal's vision is incredible and really um, gave me very specific guidelines sort of down to measures down to kind of how she envisioned each scene happening and so um, I could go off and work on some movement motifs uh, to in or actually I was doing that in May and then the month of September we all came together to actually make it happen um, and so Crystal's leadership on it I, I kind of knew how to, how it was going to work so we could work deeply quickly. And mm -hmm. I find um, Kathy's ability to draw the emotional color out of the music really inspiring. So we just kind of, there was something about the way we all think and the way court was handling fabric and color and just was, was very inspiring from the, from the beginning. That's one thing I think, well, besides the fact that you guys all just did Carmen, which again is a very like, for me, female-driven piece and usually conducted and directed by men, which usually gives it a completely different atmosphere to it. Yes. So it's yes. awesome to have two, two shows that are very female-driven that are not traditionally directed as such. So how has that been a challenge for you, Crystal? Um, but also Susan, to, to look at it, because for 104 years has predominantly been done by men and the story has been told by men and it was written by a man. So how was it to kind of switch that around and take it from a female's perspective? Well, I think again, it's just getting down to doing your research and understanding where the piece comes from. I mean, this is the thing that I was saying about Carmen too, when we did that last year is that actually um, the way that these productions have been done is not because of what's in the text or the music. It's because of what is, it's not because of what has been taken, excuse me, from the text and the music, but actually it is the text and the music. So what I'm saying is that the, um, the core of what was written is not what we see on stage. So in Carmen, for example, if you look back at Bizet's, all of the dialogue, I translated every word of all of the original dialogue, which is a lot, because the mm -hmm. show could be four hours long if you if you did every single piece of dialogue that he put in there. And um, sometimes and I, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I sifted through it and I was able to cut out, you know, stuff that didn't drive the story forward, you know, because they, they some things are harped on. And for today's audience, you've got to cut to the chase. You've got to get to the core of the story. And mm -hmm. I found that actually Carmen was a much stronger character on paper than she has been given credit for in production. And part of that is, you know, for people who don't know, Carmen, um, after Bizet died, uh, someone wrote recitatives in, to replace 
dialogue and the recitatives totally truncate the drama and you don't get any of the background. The fact that Jose is already a murderer. It's not that he becomes a murderer because of Carmen. He already was before the show even started. Mm. That's that's why he's in the military. Um, you know, well, Carmen- One of the things that, that I find yeah. so refreshing about Crystal's approach to opera, um, it, I, this is our, our third collaboration together was this, this butterfly. Um, Crystal's uh, famous for going back to the original source material and stripping away this accumulated mishigas. And it turns out when you remove all of those things, those are the hangups that keep people from really connecting with a powerful storyline. Uh, and it's interesting, we, we've used the phrase a traditional approach to butterfly. The traditional approaches is not helpful in the 21st century in connecting with an audience. The tradition no, of all of this accumulation. So when that's stripped away, Crystal always goes back every time we've worked together to the original source material, whatever that is, and finds these incredible seeds there that are planted in dialogue. They're planted in orchestration. They're planted in lyrics. Uh, and they connect with people like a laser. It's incredible. And with Butterfly, I think just piggybacking on that, the, what, what, what I find to be true about her character in any situation is that she's the daughter of a samurai. And the daughter of a samurai lives honorably until she can no longer live with honor. And her motif what, before she commits suicide is not the motif of a brokenhearted woman. It is the motif of a wounded warrior who must do what she needs to do in order to keep her honor in keeping with the tra traditions of her culture. So, you know, the strength of the women is already there. And it's um, and I think that it's overlooked. Um, it's been overlooked for a long time in production. I, I totally yeah, agree. And I think that, I think that the storytelling that, that we're, that we're commenting on and talking about here is multi-layered. So there's the storytelling that is directly sort of the story that is that sort of on a, in a heady or intellectual level, the story. And then there's the storytelling emotionally in the music and emotionally in the acting. And I think when all of those things can come together in a way that doesn't include the preconceived no notions um, that, uh, that we, that sometimes get layered on and caked on to to shows in the canon. Um, that's when it really starts to vibrate, and I think that's why you know I got such a reaction from watching the final room run because you know lighting designers tend to go watch the final room run. <laughs> I saw a few other rehearsals. <laughs> that's that's good. But um, uh, I. You know, as, as a lighting designer, I tend to need to get a handle on the emotional valences that the show is being, that the show is working with, because I think that's what's, what's where, where lighting, lighting does two things. It, it um, tries to understand and, and, and just demonstrate the, or, or walk with the emotional valences that the show at hand is is doing and it also edits right it says where to look etc so for me i had an incredible experience watching the final room run because i just had never had an emotional reaction to act one of butterfly <laughs> and i was weeping because i saw in it you were sobbing Tlaloc. 
Yeah, sobbing. <laughs> yeah, I was sobbing. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And uh, and uh, I couldn't. I couldn't really. I couldn't keep myself from from doing that, which I tried to. Um, it was because I saw the reality of what I was looking at. I saw that this could happen at any moment in people's lives. And, uh, and it had really, a lot of people say, oh yeah, you know, it's coming. And that's why you cried. That had nothing to do with it. Yeah. So, cause we all know it's coming a butterfly, but I don't think I've ever cried during a butterfly before. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No. Our, our orchestra dress, a, a, a very interesting audience showed up a very urban audience who for many of them had never been to an opera before. Uh, and I think people were shocked. Uh, I bet half of that audience had no clue what was going to happen. And that's interesting to know that you have a responsibility to tell a story for people who know it really well and have no clue what's going to happen. Yeah. Because then they come in with no preconceived notions. None. Did, do you think the audience, did it matter if they came in already knowing the show or not knowing the show? The The response that you guys got, how was it afterwards? Well, after the final dress, I mean, the, just well, just the final dress had all these gasps and responses and people saying, oh, my God, and, you know, things like that and mm -hmm. things overheard at intermission. Um, and that was one type of reaction after the opening. The <laughs> opening was full of a lot of people who did know the show. It was clear. Um, and mm -hmm. the response that I got consistently was, wow, I've never seen Butterfly done like that. And I had no idea that this was possible. There was a woman so, sitting in front of Peggy uh, at the, 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 the orchestra dress. And at the end of the show, Peggy was like, she was trying not to laugh. And this woman had seen Kate Pinkerton walk on stage and knew exactly what had, was going on and said, you better push that woman. Just push her. Just get rid of her. Get her off stage. <laughs> it did feel as if people were seeing it for the first time. Which, which is a, which is what I, I have been striving for in the last ten years that I've been directing, is I, I've always said I will always direct for people who don't know the story because if I, if I only direct for audiences that know the story, then I'm doing a disservice to the art form and I'm not letting new people in, um, mm -hmm. and the art form can't survive without letting new people in, right? And I think that um, also in terms of the singers and how Susan and I approach the movement. Um, of the piece with the singers and then with the dancers as well, um, there was a mandate that I had that I wanted to exemplify the the otherness, quote unquote, of Butterfly and her world as being, quote unquote, Japanese was not through a traditional geisha you know, whatever, whatever that means, you know, our view of what geishas do in terms of how they walk and how they behave, because um, I wasn't, I'm not interested in that. Uh, and so my mandate to Susan was to try to find a physical language that would differentiate the two different types of people on stage. So the quote unquote Americans had sort of more of a linear, you know, Susan came up with this idea of like having more of a linear straight movement whereas the rest of the cast would have this more circular movement. And then, Susan, do you want to talk about how that developed yeah, into yeah. the American Sign Language? I will, because it was such an interesting development. So I started to do some research on what do geishas do? Actually, what is the geisha culture? 
um, just to start there and looked at, you know, thank God for YouTube and <laughs> saw some beautiful films of tea ceremonies and dances and movements. And it was clear that this is in, in the research, it's highly developed, you know, centuries of, of deep knowledge and understanding and communication and symbols and uh, gestures that mean things. So I was looking at the movement and a lot of it was um, a lot of hand gestures, a lot of hand and arm. And I thought, well, what gestural language could I use that is closer to home and 20th cent 21st century? And then I thought, huh, American Sign Language. That's, that doesn't get much more gestural than that. <laughs> uh, so I hunted around for a collaborator because I don't know it. And I found this wonderful man, Bennett Whitaker, who really became um, critical to our team also. And he worked with me and the dancers to create uh, sentences, phrases, poems with American Sign Language that I incorporated into the choreography. Um, and then it started to get even more interesting because then it became a whole subversive language that was going on on stage that was kind of in its own way saying, we're clueless, you know, the majority of people going to this opera don't know American Sign Language. So even us in the audience were being left out of something that was particular to deaf community, right? So it was sort of this neat, another layer of how how um, communication, like what Crystal was saying, gets lost in translation. So there was layers of things going on, but then it turned out that the American Sign Language movement is quite beautiful. And I think Tlaloc, that was some of what that emotional color was that we felt in act one, because these movements the dancers were doing and they would, when they first entered, they were basically poetically signing what Butterfly sings at that point um, on top of kind of spatial pathways and movements around the stage um, in Court's gorgeous costumes. Um, and it, it, it was a kind of haunting and it worked with the music quite beautifully too. Which I never, you know, expected um, because I've, I'd never thought about butterfly with uh, choreography before. That's and what I was so, just going to say. That's something that I've also, it's, I mean, you have geishas, but they are always very, just the way they walk, you know, and yeah, it's static. never been choreographed. Yeah. No, and what I, what I found so inspiring about that is again, one of the things that make Crystal and Susan such a strong partnership is all of that storytelling comes out of the text. So the idea of the geisha being performers, which is really what they were and still are, uh, that is her her defense mechanism. And she goes back into that. Uh, for example, in act two, when Goro shows up, she goes back into a defensive place that comes specifically out of the style of movement that Susan was able to create. Wow. And yeah, I, and I, every time I talked about yeah. this show with other people, um, I, they would say there's choreography in Butterfly. <laughs> I think that was my first thing too. What? Choreography? The whole show. <laughs> yeah, the whole show had little bits of it throughout um, because then 
Butterfly and Suzuki would sometimes communicate in that, I guess, quote unquote, old language, you know, because there was a sense by the time we got to Act Two that um, that Butterfly, you know, was definitely had definitely renounced that life. Uh, but that, and that forged a real visceral connection between Suzuki and Chocho San on stage. You really believed that they were part of a kind of a sisterhood. And yeah. you also yeah. believe that there was a rift between them when you stopped mm. seeing that communication. And then mm. when it then when it came back in the flower duet, it just it heartbreaking. Was so amazing. Beautiful. Yeah. It's really just made you understand their relationship and how they had lost something. Because I really think that Suzuki is also a character who's overlooked um in a lot of productions as as being butterflies confidant turned enemy and back to confidant and i think that that and and that's all through butterfly's perspective of suzuki you know how she um how she gets upset with her for not believing that pinkerton's going to come back and then when they mm -hmm. finally both believe it when they finally both see the ship come in then all of a sudden you see their friendship blossom um again and, and then it's 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 an incredible emotional journey for the two of them so that was something that was uh, I was really glad to find, um, you know, this time around in a more profound way than I had found before. Um, but I also wanted to to mention about, you know, just about how Court and I, when we met a year before we started production for the first time, um, we sat down together and just went through every moment of the libretto, listened to the music and talked it through and just what were the things that stood out to us and what were um what were the uh, colors or emotions or you know feelings that we were getting from um from doing that together and i think that that i mean that is something that i really value in a, in a design team is when we can sit down and because um and i and i've and i'm very fortunate myself with designers who who want to do that work in that depth um, and that was, I think, Court, that really got us going. about Absolutely. About I mean, we're, we go back to mining the text and we find these things and we ask questions like, what is is sorrow wearing when, when the child comes on stage? Like, what is that? Well, nobody in town really knows that this child exists. So we created mm -hmm. a, a sort of a storyline that Butterfly, when she renounced her geisha way of life, the first kimono that she wears on stage, this beautiful couture, uh, kind of told uh, uh, Todd Oldham, Alexander McQueen inspired, printed um, kimono. We we going back and mining the text. We we start asking questions like, "What is sorrow wearing? Where did that fabric come from?" It's not like Suzuki could go into town and buy fabric or a baby kimono because then she would be spilling. Then the everyone beef. would know. Yeah, this child is really this clandestine secret. So uh, we we decided that uh, when Butterfly has renounced her geisha way of life. She's cut up her kimono that that she wears when she first comes on stage, uh, and it was a, a, a um, uh, Alexander McQueen, Todd Oldham inspired, digitally printed butterfly print uh, that is then cut up and made into this adorable little baby kimono, and it's just so adorable and charming. And then you think, oh my god, well that's made out of this fabric that clothed her when she was a geisha. And then we start asking questions when we get to Act Three. What is Suzuki doing in the garden to be outside when uh, uh, Sharpless and, and um, Pinkerton show up? 
So maybe she's hanging the laundry out to dry, something totally pedestrian, but it comes out of a need to create a situation where the libretto can happen in an honest, organic way. So of course, in mm -hmm. her laundry basket is this baby kimono. And of course, she's so startled when she sees him. Crystal invented this moment. Uh, Suzuki drops the laundry basket and out tumbles this baby kimono. And of course, Pinkerton sees it and it makes this devastating moment. But it's all, none of that, of that staging is in the text, but the emotional temperature of all that is right there. And when you go back to the words that they're saying, it seems like it, the most obvious way to stage something. And yet that's remarkable. People don't do that for some reason. Oh, that's a Crystal Manage invention. Genius. <laughs> you yeah. give me way too much credit, Corey. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, like, we found that moment. And yeah, maybe we found it together. But you're like, oh, I know how to communicate this to people in the back row who've never seen an opera before, let alone a butterfly. Well, Court, court always uh, is fun of me, because um, in, in a loving way. Because, uh, what is it, Court, if it's a Crystal Manage show, what, what is it about the clothes? Oh, the clothes come off. Yeah, the so, way that people put their clothes on and take their clothes off becomes part of the storytelling. And every show we've done together, that's happened. Yeah, I've done a few more shows with her than you, and it happens every show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why there's just this there's just this thing when you watch humans on stage needing to remove or put on clothing in a finite amount of musical time there's mm -hmm. something exciting about that because it makes them human all of a sudden and, and you, what you see the what humanity I find sort of breaks, breaks the rules in in the world of opera too nine times out of ten you don't get the clothes until we've done the show once through on stage and it means that it's too late to make those kinds of discoveries. So when we right. work together, there's a rack of clothes in the room for people to make those discoveries in the safe space that is a rehearsal hall so that there's so much more integrity to what they're doing than what would happen if the clothes just were thrown on them. And then they're just a surface part of the storytelling. And then it just comes purely mechanical. Like, how do you physically get this on and off in this amount of time and not how your character would do it? Exactly, because mm -hmm. we we were able to rehearse that, and and also I was amazed at the connections that the singer started making on their own with their own clothes. It was so incredibly beautiful to watch that process because the singers, you know, I I give them so much credit. I mm -hmm. mean, not just in this production. I've been very fortunate with my casts, and I feel like every time I have been able to present to them, this is what we want to do this is how we want to get there now let's fill in the blanks together and they take so much ownership of 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 so many moments and of and of making their own choices and of making their own discoveries with their props with their kimono um and and that was that was a really incredible process uh this time around in this butterfly i felt that the singers um were affected in similar ways to all of us by this process. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, watching Pinkerton go through multiple rehearsals and just ending up losing it in, in a lot of ways in terms of emotionality. Can you talk about how you saw that happen? Crystal? I just wanted to hear you. I'm just interested podcast or yeah. not. <laughs> so. That's, that's usually how we well, end up. We're just so excited. We're just like, yeah, tell us more. <laughs> well, it was um, it was really exciting because you know there were. I mean, and and, and I did have conversations with a few of the singers afterwards that um, you know, some of them 
there was one in particular that that just thanked me for a lot of things um, that go beyond the show. But, you know, as you know, our our cast was very diverse um, in 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 race. And um, I think that the way that we approached the show really allowed for that to be a non-issue. I mean, that for me was the most liberating part of the show for everyone. Um, that was because, actually what I was going to bring up, if you could talk about that, because it's yeah. non-traditional. Well, I think that the the reason why the cast was so affected by all this was because I put them all on the same playing field. But that's just because I feel like we're humans and that's what we do. But what I didn't realize was, um, after a conversation with one particular singer, um, was that that's not what always happens. And, and he felt so empowered by just letting, by allowing him to just discover character um, you know, through this process. And so when we, when we started, I said, I, I said right out loud, it's a very diverse cast and this is what we want. This is what we want opera to be. And, um, and he said he was so relieved to hear me say that on the first day, cause he was really nervous. And it really, um, that really affected me, you know, that conversation on, on at the, at the opening night party. And, and, um, I feel like that's how the whole cast sort of evolved their characters was through allowing for their own personalities and their own life experiences to come through in the character. And that's what acting is, right? Acting is not about putting on a mask. It's about bringing out parts of yourself that either people see every day or they don't see every day, but whatever combination of that, that you bring, it's you. And that was their, I think that was their visceral connection to character this time around, rather than saying, Oh, butterfly is this so I'm going to be that I mean we see so much of that right I mean we see it in every production of butterfly we see um, either butterfly herself or different characters putting on what they think that character is and we just went the opposite way just went from the inside out and discovered what is butterfly from your body and from your mind and uh, and I think that that really came through because everyone had a distinct character but they were all so connected to each other I mean, when you have singers crying in like a second rehearsal of the trio, I mean, you, you know that you've got an ensemble there. You know, you know mm -hmm. that you've got people who are really connecting to each other on stage. And it's incredible because that's how the story can be real because they're living it. I'm going to add, add in just um, that, you know, having coming from the contemporary dance world, I've always loved opera but I don't know opera like my colleagues here do. And so there's some maybe advantage to having that naivete, <laughs> you yes, know. Totally. I've, Absolutely. I've seen, I've seen Butterfly once, yeah, a long time ago, kind of didn't really like it. But, exactly. <laughs> but I didn't bring a lot of baggage, so that helps. And I wanted to mention my dancers were stu college age students, right? And uh, one or two had been in one other opera with me up at Ohio State. But they were completely enthralled. And I said, you guys, you're getting the, this is as good as it gets. This is the best. But they were emotionally invested in the story because they were being asked by Crystal and I to be real, to be, again, not to kind of paste on the emotional content, but the movement itself had to trigger uh, their own emotional connection to whether they were in relationship with Butterfly or in relationship with um, um, Suzuki 
or some of the men, they had to really find it inside themselves. And because they were sort of young and naive, I think they did that kind of beautifully. Oh, they totally did. And it was so fresh, you know, to have them on that stage for sure. Did the dancers rehearse a lot with the performers or did you do a lot of separate rehearsals and then add them later on? Or was it much more collaborative from the beginning? Um, Crystal and I talked a lot and she gave me kind of a script with, with uh, ideas about kind of the qualities or um, what the dancers. Situations. Yeah, situations, right. And here you're going to have to deal with props or here they should be in reacting to Pinkerton or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. then I worked with them for about a a week long intensive in in May just by myself and with uh, our ASL expert. And then fast forward to September, then we all worked together for a month. You were able to take videos of all of your workshopping of all of those moments and share them with the rest of the team. So that it wasn't like we were seeing it for the first time in the rehearsal. Yeah, that's right. We use video. I put stuff up on video, show it to Crystal and Court and, and then get some feedback, make some changes. Um, we had the the um, stage plan kind of taped on the floor, so we kind of knew where we would be bumping into things. There mm-hmm. was a, whole, a lot of space. So, so the dancers just had to be really flexible. I said, look, guys, we're going to get in the room, and Crystal's going to be blocking the singers, and they may or may not be where we think they're going to be, and we might have to make some adjustments or things. And we had to cut here and there and add here and there, but it's very organic. It, it was, it was very organic. What One I thing I love, what I'm amazed. Is, is, oh, go ahead. Corey. I was going to say something nice about you, Crystal. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> walks into a room, super, super, super prepared and yet super flexible so that as discoveries are made, it, everybody's ready to, to, to jump off that cliff together. That's right. And I believe in that. You know, I believe that you, you, you do your prep as a director because you should know every single thing about that show that other people don't. Mm-hmm. And then you can then from there you can be flexible because you know where it starts and you can and you know how far you can go in the other direction without doing a disservice to the music and the text. Because in the end, and I will always go back to this, the music and the text is it's a masterpiece. There's no question that Butterfly is a masterpiece. It's just making sure that we, whatever we're doing, um, we are always going back to what is that basic, again, that basic story that I was talking about before. So once you are clear about that basic story, you can you can go in many different directions as you want. You know, it's it's kind of endless. I mean, I felt that we, we could have kept rehearsing for another week and we would have found more stuff. I mean, it just kept unfolding. It was it was um, one of the most exciting processes of my career, for sure. Well, cool. One of the things I was thinking, and uh, I work for East West Players, which is a um, Asian American theater in Los Angeles, and they strive on doing uh, all kinds of modern and traditional shows, but cast completely uh, inclusive. Um, they do a they're coming up, they're doing Mamma Mia, and it's all going to be Asian cast, which they said gives the uh, Asian community a show that normally they would never be considered being casted, being able to actually do the show and cast in it. For Madam Butterfly, did you have a lot of people who were not traditional? I know in opera, a lot of times they 
the person who sings Butterfly has done it 15 times all over the country, and it's the same people doing the show on the same set in the same costumes. Did you guys get a lot of new people who never could have done Butterfly before, and so were new to the opera process or were new to Butterfly itself just because you were so inclusive on everyone being able to participate in this production? Everyone in the cast was doing the roles for the first time, except for the Pinkerton, who has done several. I mean, Pinkerton is his wheelhouse, so he's done several of them. But he's so, he's so, Daniel Montenegro, he's such an open person that he wanted, you know, he wanted what I wanted out of Pinkerton, which was great. Because he doesn't like, you know, I don't like to vilify characters. I just like characters. <laughs> but he's not the best one. <laughs> but I like, well, that's human, right? It's like, how do you yeah. make Pinkerton human? Because humans make choices and sometimes they're bad. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't mean that they're bad people. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so, uh, and then also the Sharpless had done uh, Sharpless at least one other time. That was it. Everyone else was brand new uh, to the roles, which I love because when you have a combination um, of people who are doing it for the first time and people have done it before, you get a nice mix in there. Um, the Chocho-san, the butterfly, uh, her name's Janet Todd. She and I had worked together in a production in Australia a couple of years back, and um, she's she's young, and uh, she is um, she's half Australian and half Chinese. Um, but that had no bearing on her casting. What had bearing on the casting was that I sent her materials to Peggy and said, "This is a butterfly in the making. It's not going to be um, a, a spinto sound." It's a lyric sound, but it can work in this size theater. And Peggy heard one recording and jumped on it. And um, what I knew about Janet from having worked with her before is what an incredibly sensitive actress she is. I mean, she is so it's it's it was the most beautiful um, process to watch her um, do because uh, she was always in the moment and always reacting in the moment and was so real. So in that sense, she was actually the perfect person for the role because she played this strong um, character, yet it was so sensitive and came from a true place. So it was, um, yeah. So in that sense, having the the diverse cast with different levels of experience um, come together was, was pretty amazing. You mentioned Peggy and I'm sad we couldn't have her on this, this podcast but what I think is wonderful is that Peggy has created it seems this whole community at Opera Columbus that's allowing you to create this work and it's she's not she's allowing you to be free and giving you guys yes freedom but giving guys this this safe place to work which I think is just so amazing of her to do it is it is so rare um to have uh the director of a company doing that during this time because so much of what's happening in opera right now, I mean, there's a huge split, right? You've got the bigger companies who are trying to just keep going um, Mm -hmm. and trying to salvage uh, an audience. And then you have the small companies who actually, even though they have less money, they can take more risks because they have Mm -hmm. more seats to fill and they, um, their community that they're surrounded by is completely on board with moving opera in a new direction that is scary to a lot of the bigger companies that are beholden to either a certain donor base or a certain audience base, a certain expectation being, you know, wrapped into a big theater. 
so it's um, so there's you know there's there's a struggle I think happening in a division in the opera world in this country at the moment, and that's why I think Peggy has done such a great job at you know she has a board that's behind her. Um, she's very adamant about what she wants opera to be and who she wants to have included in that process. And that and that is I love working there because she has always given me this huge artistic freedom that you just mentioned. Um, and and I think the team really um, also senses that. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we, we were, I think that we were successful because of that. And Court even mentioned before the podcast started that only does Peggy let that or um, enable that to happen on stage, but she's very, what were the words you use? A very inclusive backstage as well. Radically inclusive. How, how do you think that she's done that? You mentioned earlier that half the audience had seen opera before and half hadn't. Does she have like a very big outreach program or how does she get these non-opera goers to come see shows? I think um, she's a wizard. (laughs) She's just magic. (laughs) She is magic. She has partnerships um, uh, with a lot of different entities in in the city of Columbus. And she also has a diverse board that has um, connections to, to different audiences that they're able, you know, and she gives away free tickets for final dress to some of these groups and also to, um, to young people. Uh, you know, to schools and things like that in programs. So, um, doesn't she have a <laughs> partnership with the Urban Development League? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's who was uh, that was big group there was um, at the dress rehearsal. So it's um, so it's a real, it's a real desire to get new audience, not just saying, oh, we're trying to get new audience, but she's actually in the trenches doing it. Yeah, and Peggy also made a commitment to. Uh, interpret with ASL interpreters every performance. So there are non-hearing people who've never felt welcome at the opera before, who are now given a place at the table. I was going to say that because we incorporated the ASL into the um, stage, the movement, um, I just find that Peggy says yes, you know, she's like, yes, and not yes, but. Um, (laughs) So she was like loving it and just totally trusting me and Crystal with what we're doing. And then started to investigate having the entire opera signed, which is, I'm sure, a pretty penny and um, a, a risk and a statement. And it was stunning. She had two women do it over on the side. Uh, and some deaf community did come because of the because of all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. They loved it. They said the dancers were signing like like they were fluent professionals. Wow. They understood the layers of it. Of course, they were also seeing the surtitles, but they were um, gobsmacked, to use one of my favorite <laughs> words. Uh, and so I think that's going to continue, I hope. Um, so Peggy has that kind of, yes, let's do it. <laughs> I think they probably uh, experienced uh, layers uh, and intermingling of layers that we, the creative team, didn't. Exactly. And I think that is a beautiful, beautiful thing um, to behold because I always feel that when a group of people come together to make a show, the, the, the result is 
more than any one of the members. And so uh, I always I, I always feel like that's what I actually look for when I'm when I'm doing this work. And and I saw it happen in this situation. And I don't even know uh, what that other experience was, but it, I, I do know it was there. And I think that's just fantastic. Yeah. Which is a little bit like Pinkerton really didn't have a clue what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> One and only time I did butterfly, there was maybe like a two minute section at the end of the show where I almost felt sorry for him. And then I was like, Nope. And so I kind of wish, I mean, I really wish I had seen your guys' production because you kind of want to feel sorry for him. You want to believe that everybody's good deep down and that everybody, you know, makes the choices they make for a specific reason. And it's yes. not because they're bad people. And to walk away from a production, especially a butterfly, just believing that this person's evil because of what they did, you know, always made me feel a bit gypped because I was like, no, they're, they're, they're not completely evil. There has to be something good in them. You know, but to not ever quite find it is always kind of disappointing. Yeah, just it, can why, be, it can be so yeah. one dimensional. It can be so one dimensional, and that's not, you know, what it should be about. Yeah, which is probably why I have, and I know I've talked to T about this multiple times. Is I have a hard time doing traditional opera, what I call traditional opera, because I feel it's so one dimensional, or so many yeah. directors get caught up, you know having to stage Bohem the same way it's always been staged and Carmen the same way it's and cozy and always having to do these traditional productions because that's what brings in the money, but to do them in ways that to me are just so one dimensional and just have no emotional. And I don't feel connected to anybody and I just don't enjoy them. So to hear of these productions that are traditional and the fact that it's Madame Butterfly, it's Puccini opera, um, but to have emotion attached to it and, and to even have all of you guys still willing to talk about this months after the production happened, you're all in different states and different cities working on different projects. And you were all willing to come back together and talk about this production because it was so emotional for you and because it, you connected so well with it. Well, I think it's, I think, I think it's, it's because I think it's because we think it's important. You know, yes. That's a it's, big it's, one. It's completely essential for this art form for these kinds of conversations to happen and for these productions to happen in this way. I mean, I, I think that it's funny because people who didn't see the show and hear about our process, some of them might think it's a little kumbaya, but I'm telling you that it was, <laughs> that it was, that it was completely real. And it, it really, you know, for, for my, the, the, the years that I've been in opera for more than a decade now, I have always had this mandate in my head and a challenge for myself saying, Never forget that the music and the story will carry this art form through and always go back to that, but expand your mind. And I feel like after this many years, I'm finally, um, I finally have enough experience and I'm in a position in which I can be really vocal about this. And I have been um, because mm -hmm. I, because I really think that we do the art form a disservice by not uh, reevaluating our production practices. And I think that the, um, the way forward is to allow production teams to approach these works in different ways because, you know, an audience doesn't know what it wants until you present them something new and exciting that they, that they never knew existed. And that is the key, you know, to, to this, like people saying, wow, I never knew that I would love butterfly. Um, and so that to me is, 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 is what, 
what this art form could be. And it's what's going to keep it alive, I think. Yes, it's the only way forward. It's because if, if we if we continue to do productions where people are standing around in white sheets and you know just standing and singing it it's not it's it's not that's why there's dwindling audiences to begin with and so what and 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 again i always say making opera relevant doesn't mean that you make it all 21st century and give everyone a cell phone on stage and that's making opera <laughs> relevant that's that's not it at all actually that makes it less relevant um what <laughs> what 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 makes opera live and what makes these pieces live frankly um throughout the centuries is the universality of the story and that is what you have to go back to and that's you know it's what my i had a directing professor who taught me embrace the cliche you know cliches aren't all bad if they are there, it's because they work and embrace it. And you will find that people won't even realize that you're that you're embracing the cliche because it will feel new because you're not trying to reject it. You know, one thing that I really appreciate with working with Crystal, um, it, it goes along with the thing about taking off clothes. Is that <laughs> I, well, as a dancer, obviously being in one's body is essential. And we work on the trusting the body and the body has intelligence and the body is what it is. It is us, right? Body mind is one thing. And I start to add the idea that voice, you know, is body and voice comes from the body as does movement. And so understanding how to animate an opera through the physicality of the voice and the movement, um, has been, I, I now am understanding that this is unusual. <laughs> and it's something that I love about working with Crystal and hope to do more things in the future. But it it also informs my work as a stage choreographer for contemporary dance to, to kind of reinforce that the, the emotional expression is really deeply coming from our bodies. Sorry for the interruption, but we were having such a great conversation, we didn't want to stop at one hour. So we broke this podcast into two episodes. Stay tuned for the second part where we talk about the actual production. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstalktheater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of IncomTech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.